Amen. Turn with me this morning in the Word of God to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And for those of you who are worshipping with us today, your visitors, we, we not only bid you warmly welcome, but we just want to point out to you that we're engaged at the moment in a series of expository messages on the book of Philippians. We're now in chapter 3, and th- those previous messages are all on the internet. And if you go to our church website, you might be able to uh, pick up some of the threads of previous messages. Philippians chapter 3, reading of, from verse 1, reading, of course, from the authorized version. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For him I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 14. And we pray God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. And my theme today is the why and way of God's so great salvation. The why and the way of God's so great salvation. Now, as you look at the text this morning, Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 7, I want you to ask yourself, what is this text of Scripture telling me? What's it teaching me? And I believe, as I've tried to study it 
It teaches me the why and the way of God's great salvation. Notice three things in the text. The subject addressed. Ask yourself, what is the subject the Apostle Paul is addressing here as he writes from his prison cell to the Philippian church? And the subject is how to be in a right relationship with God. It concerns your and mine personal salvation. The most important thing the Apostle Paul focuses on is concerning the salvation of the souls of men and women. See, the subject here is not political. It's not financial. He does mention gain and loss. I'm well aware of that in verse 7. But it's not a political matter he's dealing with, or a financial matter, or a social matter, or a material matter. It's not even Paul focusing on himself and his circumstances in the prison cell. Paul focuses in on one subject only. And that is the subject of salvation of the immortal souls of men and women. When Paul mentions gain and loss in verse 7, I believe he's using the words spiritually as well as literally in dealing with the subject of how to be right with God. We could ask ourselves this morning, what is the most important question in the whole of the world? And there's many questions. The Philippian jailer asked, I believe, what's the most important? What must I do to be saved? In other words, what must I do to be right with God? What must I do to become a Christian? You see, by nature, none of us by ourselves are in a right relationship with God. Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When did all sin? Romans 5 and 12, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin... And death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, we sinned in him. When Adam fell into a state of sin and misery, we fell in him. When Adam disobeyed, Adam's disobedience became our disobedience. When Adam became guilty, Adam's guilt became our guilt. When Adam transgressed the law of God, Adam's transgression of the law became ours. Why? Because Adam was the representative of the whole of the human race. You and I are born into this world as guilty sinners. That's what the Bible teaches. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're born sinners by nature and sinners by practice. We're born with a bad record and a bad heart. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. Who can know it? And as we live out our lives physically, we're constantly sinning against the holy God every day in thought and in word and in deed. Solomon said he was the wisest man that ever lived. There's not a just man that liveth and sinneth not. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 and in the verse 5. Whenever he says, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You see, the true and living God cannot and does not turn a blind eye to sin. The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. Habakkuk said, Thou art of pure eyes, and to behold iniquity. And God's anger is a righteous anger. It's a real anger. 
Oh, oh it's, a, it's a regal anger. It's not something that's rash or, or lighthearted or not something that's uncontrollable. God's anger, God's hatred for sin is linked to his holy justice, his holy law. In fact, it's linked to his essential and eternal nature. God hates sin. God must punish sin. God must be the judge of sin. So because of sin in the world, because we were born in sin, we're therefore not right with God by ourselves. We're under his judgment. We deserve his wrath. And if God decided to put all men into hell, then he would be totally just and totally fair in doing so. We recognize in society that the guilty must be punished. If a man's guilty of murder and theft and something else, then he must be punished by the court of the law. And, and the Apostle Paul understood that situation perfectly in a spiritual sense. Job asked the question, how then can man be justified with God? Job 25 and 4. You see, in light of the sinful life that we all live, in light of the certainty of death that awaits us, because the wages of sin is death, in light of the reality and enormity of eternity, all other questions peel into insignificance. And the greatest and the pressing question is how to be right with God. It is certainly not, will Theresa May survive as Prime Minister in the next six months? It's not about Brexit. It's not, will there be another financial crash? It's not about world debt or world poverty, although those are real. It's not even about domestic violence. It's not even about the explosion of immorality throughout the world. And it's not even what's wrong with the United Kingdom today. Although these are all questions, and important questions as they are, the greatest question you'll ever face in life is this. How to be in a right relationship with the God of heaven. How can men and women, boys and girls and young people, be brought into a right relationship with God and saved from the penalty and power of their own human sinfulness? By themselves, by their own strength and ability, by the church, by themselves, plus a little help from Christ. You see, certain Jews in Paul's day, when he was in prison in Rome, that's what they were going about teaching and saying. They were preaching an answer to this important question. But sadly and regrettably, it was the wrong answer. And that's why Paul is addressing the subject. It's as if someone had owed, say, 10,000 gold coins. And they'd got a receipt paid in full. And then the debtor had come back and said, Look, you still owe me some more gold coins. And I've come to collect. Here's Paul, and he's saying to these Philippian believers to rejoice in the Lord. He says to them in verse 3, rejoice in Christ Jesus. In fact, Christ Jesus is mentioned eight times in the first 14 verses that I read to you. And Paul knew that this answer of these certain Jews was undermining the joy of God's people. They were robbing them of their joy in Christ. They were undermining the true ground of 
God's salvation. That's why he called them dogs. That's why he called them evil workers. That's why he called them the concision, strong language. But, but Paul felt that he had to expose them, just like we would feel the, the need to expose somebody who's guilty of fraud today. He knew it was his duty as a, a gospel minister because he had to defend the gospel. If someone adds anything to Christ and preaches other than Christ alone for salvation, it's another gospel. But what do people want to add? Good works, rites and ceremonies of the church. These Judaizers wanted to add circumcision plus keeping the law. They wanted to tell the Gentiles, yes, you need Christ, but you also need to become a Jew. And the Apostle Paul, he has nothing to boast of, he tells them, except Jesus Christ. And Paul knows it's undermining the faith of true believers. And he's telling them, look, I have a reason to boast. If any man has confidence in the flesh, then when you think of my background and my behavior, then I have more to boast of than you. Listen to what I'm saying. See, this is the subject that's addressed. It's how to be in a right relationship with God. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Christ Jesus, which means to boast in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is mentioned eight times. He gets the number of new beginning in these first 14 verses. It's all about being in a right relationship with God through faith in Christ. Now, that's the subject addressed. Notice, secondly, the subject answered. Notice how Paul answers it. Look with me at verse 5. Circumcise the eighth day. We'll pause there. There's an admission of ritual. You see, Paul is saying to them, salvation is not gained or merited due to anything but Christ alone. It's certainly not due to the admission of ritual. Circumcised the eighth day, circumcision is his Jewish right. It commenced in the day of Abraham. Abraham. God commanded Abraham to be circumcised when he was aged 99 years old. And thereafter, all the male descendants on the eighth day after birth were to be circumcised. Paul was an eighth dare. You give a little insight there into his home life. It was a strict religious home. His mother and father must have valued their Judaism. It's part of Paul's heritage. They were so particular on the eighth day, take them to the synagogue and have them circumcised. And they're underscoring the purity of his own Jewish background. You talk of circumcision, he's saying to these Jews. You insist that it's for all Jews and Gentiles in order to be saved. Well, did you know that I was circumcised when I was eight days old? Circumcision, of course, is a token of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And he was saying that the children of the covenant, well, they'll enjoy all the privileges and blessings of that covenant. But as a way of salvation, or as a part of salvation, they were not to hope and trust in that ritual. Because having rituals didn't make the apostle Paul a child of God. He was still in his sin when he was in the Damascus Road and met the risen Christ. 
He, he, he up to that point hadn't been redeemed. He hadn't repented of his sin. Remember Jesus said, except you repent, you shall likewise perish. The admission of ritual. Do, do you know today people talk about christenings? The idea is of making a child a Christian. I want to stress that christening doesn't make a child a Christian. The idea that the baptism of a child makes a child a believer is entirely false and foreign to the New Testament. Many trust in rituals, in candles and confessions, in the wafer and the wine, in sprinkling and in the sacraments, in burnings and bleedings, but they're absolutely of no value when it comes to the salvation of your mortal soul. When you come to die, when it comes to eternity, it's a false way. Also is the acceptance of race. Look also what Paul says. Of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews. See, Apostle Paul was a Jew. He was proud of his racial background. He was also proud of his Jewish behavior. These people, these Gentiles or these Jews, who may be described as dogs and evil workers and concision, they were boasting of the fact that they were part of the Jewish race. They could trace their Jewish ancestry, trace their family tree. We have great ancestors. We're related to the patriarchs, the prophets, the priests, and they prided in the fact that they belonged to such a race. Remember the Jews on one occasion said to Christ, we have Abraham as our father. We're okay. We're related to Abraham. We could talk about Father Abraham. And they were trusting in their racial background who they were as good Jews. And Paul's saying, look, are you good Jews? Not only was I circumcised in the eighth day, but I'm also of the stock of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm an Hebrew of the Hebrews. Did you know that the tribe of Benjamin is the kingly tribe? Which tribe did the first king of Israel come from? Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin. I believe that's why Saul of Tarsus was called Saul. Because he was from the tribe of Benjamin and he's related to the, the, the first king as far as that tribe is concerned. A privileged tribe. Benjamin, remember, was the last son of Rachel and Jacob that was born. And it's possible and probable that Saul of Tarsus was named after King Saul. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, I'm purebred. I have been greatly privileged by God. I am not a proselyte. I, I, I haven't come into the Jewish religion late in life. I, I was born a Jew. What a background. Unparalleled. But you know what? It didn't make the Apostle Paul right with God. Many people think about their family background. Lord Mountbatten, who was murdered by the IRA, did you know he was the last viceroy of India? Did you also know that he was related to many noble families throughout the whole of Europe? And during the long evenings in India, he, he was impressed by the immensity of his family tree. Suppose this morning, 
you also looked into your family background, examined your family tree, and discovered you were related to King William of Orange. You gloried in the fact that you were a Protestant. Suppose you were a Roman Catholic, and you discovered in your family background that you were related to uh, Pope Francis or some of the other popes. Suppose you were a Muslim, and you looked into your family background, and you discovered, you know what? I'm related to Muhammad. Oh, he's a long, long distant cousin of mine. Or, or, or Buddha. And he's discovered, I'm related to Buddha himself. Do you know, it wouldn't make you a child of God. It's not the first birth that saves your soul. It's the second birth. Jesus said, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. And remember, as far as race is concerned, we're descendants of Adam. And as descendants of Adam, we're in need of a saviour. And that's what the evolutionists deny. The evolutionists will tell you, or oh, we come from the monkeys. They don't want to believe that we come from the first man, Adam. Not Adam, the apes. Why? Well, let me tell you why. Because they don't want to be associated with Adam's sin. Because the moment they accept the first man was Adam, and they come from the loins of Adam... They're not only associated with Adam's sin, but they discover that they're accountable and dependable upon to the God who made Adam. Adam's God. And that's why the evolutionists deny this. The acceptance of race. What about the argument of religion? Look, 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 look at the text. Look, look what it says as touching the law, a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul was brought up a strict Pharisee. He was a member of a very strict Jewish sect. That's why I said he was born into a religious house. He lived the lifestyle of a Pharisee because he was a son of a Pharisee. His father must have been a Pharisee. He had the best religious education possible. He was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the great teachers of the day. And he lived by strict rules and regulations. Do you know many laws the Pharisees kept or tried to keep? 618. When Rosie and I, again, were in the land of Israel there, we seen many Orthodox Jews and they had little strings all hanging out of their pockets. I thought to myself, isn't that a bit strange? Imagine walking about, not only sometimes we see people walking about with a bunch of keys, but these are walking about with bunches of strings hanging down from their belt or out of their pocket. Why? And the answer is, every string represents a law that they must keep. And, and as a Pharisee, Paul wasn't half-hearted. He promoted and defended his religion. Look what he says, verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. You only have to read about that in Acts 9. What he did to the Jews at Jerusalem. What, what he intended to do to the, 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 the believers in Damascus. Here's this man with this background. And this pedigree. And he's using this argument. The argument of religion. As touching the law. I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal. I persecuted the church. You think this morning of world religions. Religion says do this. And do that. It's all related to the way of Cain. The labor of one's hands. Cain brought the fruit and the vegetables. Presented unto God and the altar. But it's not what God required. Not what God had revealed. It was not God's way. And thousands are religious. 
but not regenerate. And religion doesn't make an individual right with God. George Whitfield, when he was 16 years of age, he fasted 36 hours a week. He almost starved himself to death at times. When he went outside to pray, he, he went out without a coat. He has often said that his hands turned blue with the cold in the winter time. He daily read his Bible. He attended church regularly. He offered much prayer. And you know what he said? It made him more miserable. Imagine going to church and reading your Bible and praying, and you're doing your best, and you're fasting, and you're more miserable, and you're full of guilt. And, and George Whitfield felt he was ashamed that, that he was not good enough. I want to ask this morning, which religion saves? Is it the Protestant religion? Is it the Roman Catholic religion? Is it the religion of the Islamist? The Buddhist religion? Any other religion? Which religion saves? And here's the answer. None. And which church saves? Here's the answer. None. Because neither is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Not a Presbyterian or a Methodist or a Baptist or a free Presbyterian. Because, you see, it's not religion that saves or the church. What saves us is Christ. By the regenerating power of his spirit, through the redemption of his blood sacrifice. People today talk about, I've got my religion. People today talk about, I've got my church. Is that what they're depending upon? To be in a right relationship with God and gain entrance to heaven? Not only the argument of religion, but notice the achievement of respectability. Notice what he says, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Underline that word blameless. What's what he's saying there? Not one person could point the finger at me. He's, he's thinking about his achievement. He's thinking of his outstanding behavior. He's thinking of the fact that he's head and shoulders above all. He's claiming here an outward observance of the law. And he, he says as far as that external application of the law is concerned, I can't be charged with a single fault. He was an outstanding young man. He had attained the level of morality that few had achieved. We could call the Apostle Paul before he was converted, Mr. Self-Righteous. He was the best positive representative of self-righteousness that you could find. But you know what? It was of no value. Not to a soul. It didn't make him right with God. It didn't make him fit with heaven. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 64 and verse 6, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In the book of Galatians, Paul had already written to the Galatian church, troubled with these dogs, evildoers, and concision. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Titus says in Titus 3, 5, and 6, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. 
Now here he is, living a decent, respectable, sincere, upright life. According to the law, he's blameless, but he was not right with God. And you know what happened to this man? One day he discovered he was a sinner. He remembered that it's written, the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. And he said, I would have not known lust, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. And that was an eye-opening revelation for the apostle, discovering he was a sinner who needed to be saved. Now here are four ways, four false ways. He's addressing ritual. The acceptance of race, the argument of religion, the achievement of respectability. And you know what? They're all false ways. Let me tell you this. There's a bridge in Canada over the Niagara River. And you could go to that bridge and you could start making a way way across. And you could think to yourself, I'm going to reach the other side. You know what? You wouldn't reach the other side. Do you know why? Because when you get to a certain point in that bridge... There's no more bridge unless you want to swim. The bridge only goes a part of the way. And you see, these ways, ritual, race, religion, respectability, are really a false way. Solomon said, there's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Paul knew these were false ways. Notice one final thing, the subject analyzed. Look at verse 7, Philippians chapter 3. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. The Apostle Paul adopts the role of an accountant. He gets the balance sheet out. He makes a record of all the external things that he could boast of, that he could glory in, that he could have confidence in. What things were gained to me? The things that look good. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteous was in the law, blameless. So he's thinking of his rituals. He's thinking of the race. He's thinking of his religion. He's thinking of respectability. And he, he says, I count them all but laws. For Christ. Look at verse 8. He says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ Jesus my Lord, for him I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ. The reference to dung here means I repudiate them. He's renouncing his trust in them, he's repenting of his trust in them. His eyes have been opened. He sees the filthy sin of self-righteousness. And he must repent of it. Remember the story that Jesus told of the parable of two men went into the temple to pray. One was a publican, one was a Pharisee. The Pharisee stood and said, I thank you God, I'm not like this other man. I haven't done this, I haven't done that. I I have did this and I I have did that. But the, the old publican, the Bible tells us he wouldn't lift up his eyes and look. The Bible tells us he smote upon his breast. The Bible tells us he called, God be merciful to me the sinner. 
And which one went home justified? The one who called for mercy. The one who confessed he was a sinner. See the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome. This is what he said in Romans chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. But not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness. And going about to establish their own righteousness. See, establish their own righteousness through ritual, through religion, through race, through respectability. And have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Why? For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. You see, salvation is found in Christ alone. And as in closing, let me tell you that salvation is not something gained by us. It's in gifted to us. Salvation is gifted to us when we're born again of the Spirit and brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ is a fully sufficient Savior. Christ fulfilled the law of God on our behalf. Christ is absolutely sinlessly perfect and those in him are counted righteous in him. Let me give you a little sum as we finish. Think about a mass class. Christ plus nothing equals everything. Christ plus anything equals nothing. Christ plus nothing equals everything. Because it's Christ alone. That's the ground of salvation. Christ plus anything. Oh, you can have Christ, but you need ritual. You need to become a Jew. You need circumcision. You need the law. You need this and that and the other. Christ plus anything equals nothing. Because you're corrupting God's foundation. Let me ask you this morning. Are you fully and only trusting in Christ alone for salvation? And that's the ground of your hope for heaven. Can you say this morning, I'm depending on Christ and Christ alone. The subject here is how to be right with God. The subject has been answered. This is what it's not. These things have got to be counted loss that you might gain Christ. Let me ask you, have you gained Christ? May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to you this morning.